It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 14th of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. As you heard on this programme yesterday, AIM2 leader Padre Tobin accused the government of ignoring a family who are furious that an independent investigation will not be held into why they were wrongly told that they were expecting a child with Edward Syndrome. Speaking uh, under dull privilege, Pater Tobin said he was speaking on behalf of uh, the family who decided to terminate the pregnancy, only to be told afterwards it was not, in fact, a fatal fetal abnormality. The family, he said want to have some input into the terms of reference for an internal inquiry and are asking if the procedure was in line with uh, the abortion legislation. As I say, he raised this in the doll during uh, questions uh, to uh, the Taoiseach and we'll hear what uh, the Taoiseach had to say in response now. Um, and it is a private matter and I'm not party to all of the information uh, either from the family affected or, 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 or from... Are from the are from the hospitals uh, side side uh, either, um, so I really, really don't want to get involved in commenting on an individual case, even one that is very very sad, such as this, particularly when there may be legal proceedings underway. Um, but I do understand that the Minister for Health um, does uh, want and expect that a uh, external inquiry be carried out in, into the facts of this. Thank you, Teacher Deputy Fiona Lachlan. Please, deputies. Deputy Fiona. Uh, Deputy Fiona. Th- thank you. Thank and, you, uh, The Keown Corla moved on uh, to other matters uh, at uh, that stage. But uh, as we said, when we listened to that audio on the programme yesterday, it was clear that Peter Tobin had more to say to the Taoiseach. And uh, Deputy Tobin is on the line with us now. And a very good morning to you. And uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. I believe you've been speaking with uh, the solicitor who's representing uh, this family. Uh, and uh, without going over what you said in the doll, which we heard in full on the programme yesterday, perhaps uh, you could outline the legislation as it stands for us. If a termination is to take place, uh, there's a, a number of things that must happen first. Yes, yeah, so this is, first of all, this is a very tragic case. Um, it is a personal catastrophe uh, for the mother, father and for the child. Uh, and the legislation is very clear in this. Uh, the legislation states a number of things must happen 
uh, for an abortion to take place in the cases of life-limiting conditions or fatal fetal abnormalities. And one of the main issues there is that the two obstetricians or the two medical practitioners must examine the mother uh, in question in advance of the abortion and must be of good mind then that in actual fact this child is unlikely to survive after 28 days. Um, and if that's the case, they can sign off on the issue uh, of the abortion. And there also must be a, diag- a diagnosis that the child has uh, a condition uh, that won't allow the child to survive after 28 days. Now, um, in, in both of those uh, situations, I have been told by the family uh, through the solicitor that, that neither of those issues uh, actually occurred. Uh, that the, one of the practitioners, medical practitioners, uh, did not meet uh, with the, the mother in question in advance, never mind examine the mother in question in advance. Uh, and also the tests that were carried out uh, were screening tests, uh, not diagnostic tests. And a screening test, and we know, you know there's great, uh, a, a great crisis within the cervical mm-hmm. uh, cancer uh, t- uh, scandal currently, because there is a difference between screening tests and diagnostic tests. And this is in, in the same situation here, that the abortion occurred before the results of the diagnostic test actually uh, uh, was returned. And but the they were given, were given a, a diagnosis, uh, a diagnosis of T18, was it, or Edwards syndrome? Yes, no, they, were, they were given a, um, they weren't given a diagnosis specifically, and this is, it, it's, there's a clear difference. The diagnosis could have only have come after the third test results came through. That diagnostic uh, test a, that had been amniocentesis. But at this stage, the family had only gone through a screening test, which obviously has a margin of error. And the, the, the heartbreak for us in this is that we raised this in the doll last December uh, to the Taoiseach and to the Minister for Health that, you know, if there was a margin of error in the processes that they were using, there would always be mistakes like this uh, mm-hmm. happening. And um, obviously this has led to this phenomenally tragic situation. And the family are furious in this as well, because, you know, the Taoiseach stated that this was a private matter, but the family have reached out to me through their solicitor in an effort to bring this in the public domain. Mm. And, you know, they have written, they've written to the Minister for Health three weeks ago. The Minister had all of the information on his desk. Yeah, and, and this was something that... Uh we thought you had said in the doll yesterday, uh, because uh, as uh, the Kim Corla moved on to other matters, uh, we could hear you, but you were off mic. Your mic was turned off, but I, I think uh, you were being picked up by the Taoiseach's microphone, and it sounded as though you had said that it had been raised with the government through the minister three weeks ago. And I, I thought the point you were making was that the Taoiseach was saying, well, look, you can't spring this on me like this. Exactly. So the Taoiseach was, first of all, saying that it was a private matter. And the second point he was making that it was uh, an issue that he had full information on. Now, I also rose, uh, raised this with the minister, but, or with the Taoiseach two weeks ago, and he said exactly the same things to me. So, you know, w- within the last three weeks, we know that the Minister for Health has had all the information in front of him, that the AG, the Attorney General, has also got all the information, and the family have spoken at length to the chief medical officer of the state. So all, all those three angles that they have tried to get the information to the Taoiseach, just to see simply a number of things. Okay. All they're asking for is an independent investigation where they can steer some of the terms or references of that investigation. And the second thing they're looking for is a change in the guidelines to make sure that this simply won't happen again. Okay. Uh, let's be fair, if we can. Uh, it's it, 
doesn't appear to be correct to say that the family are being ignored by the government uh, because they've met with uh, the chief medical officer. They have, but I, I suppose this is where the frustration lies. They have met with the, tre- the chief medical officer and have spoken at length for hours, but they still haven't had their input into the terms of reference. And still this is a review where the HSE and the hospital are involved in that particular review. And in the, uh, the, the master of the National Maternity Hospital has a statutory duty to defend the hospital. And yet we understand that the hospital themselves are involved in this particular review. And you and I know from all of the, the, the scandals we have seen over the last 20 and 30 years that the people who have, are involved in the alleged offences if they're also involved in the review of the investigation, it doesn't lead to a fully transparent, independent investigation. And that's what needs to happen here. Because the, the, the allegations that have been made are of a very serious nature. We're talking about you know, people uh, being accused of an illegal abortion uh, in this country within three months of the legislation coming in. And my, my anger with, with the government on this is that the government wants to sweep this under the carpet. If this case was on the other side of the, of the debate, it would be all over the doll. And this, the shocking thing about uh, this issue as well is none of the other opposition parties have brought this, uh, uh, this case to the fore whatsoever. In, in many ways, I feel like there's no opposition in the doll uh, on this particular issue, and, the, and, and that's what's leading to the frustration with regards to this particular family's case. Uh, and in your opinion... If the family's claims hold up, would this be an illegal abortion or would it be an abortion that was carried out outside of the guidelines for terminating pregnancy? Absolutely. If the family's claims are holding up, and I I have no reason to disbelieve uh, the family, and it's not, you know, the allegations they're making is not necessarily of a technical uh, space. They're saying very clearly that one of the the, the medical practitioners never even met the mother. Uh, in that case, it is absolutely an illegal uh, abortion. And, um, you know, it, it could be dealt with either by an investigation uh, and through the guidelines or potentially mm. through the criminal system uh, within the country. Well, uh, most likely not. Uh, I mean, you would have to assume uh, that if uh, this was carried out, but not to the letter of uh, the law, that uh, something uh, happened uh, which caused an oversight of some sort. Well, listen, I, I mean, it wouldn't I, be... I, 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 I don't be, want to be determining anything at, at, at this moment in time. No. What we're really looking for, and uh, no, but uh, I mean, I, point, and I, 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 I think we're jumping the gun to start talking about uh, criminal proceedings. Well, all I'm saying is that the the law was not adhered to, mm. and an actual fact, but that the actions were were specifically and very openly contrary. But it doesn't, but sure, but it doesn't follow that uh, a criminal act uh, uh, is necessary to break the law, or for the law to be broken. More to the point. Well. I don't want to jump the gun either. What I'm saying, to, uh, what I'm saying is, and what I'm asking for at this stage yeah. is very simply, that the mother and father at this in, the, in this tragic situation uh, would first of all have an independent investigation, that they would have uh, input into the terms of reference, that we don't ever have a case again that such an abortion can take place without the medical practitioners fully. uh, fulfilling the responsibility to the law Mm. and that no abortion in this case should be undertaken without the uh, an actual diagnosis uh, happening you know obviously i oppose uh, abortion uh, Mm. in 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 these in these circumstances but at the very least as a country should we not be looking 
to make sure that the law as it exists is implemented uh, and it is fulfilled. And you know, there's, no, there's no point in having a, a, a very divisive mm-hmm. referendum, very divisive legislation, creating the legislation, and then three months later just throwing the legislation in the bin and ignoring it. Yeah, and uh, I do want to stress that we're not coming to any conclusions. Uh, these are the claims uh, that the family are, are making, as you say. If yeah. those claims are upheld, you believe that the abortion would have been carried out uh, in breach of the existing legislation. Tell me a little bit about the letter, if you would, that the family wrote to the minister three weeks ago, not necessarily about what happened in terms of how this termination was carried out or how that decision came about, but uh, did they request a meeting with the minister or with the Taoiseach or with the government? They, they have been looking to meet with the minister, uh, is, is my understanding, uh, at, this, at this moment in time. Uh, I believe also that they have communicated with the, uh, with the, uh, the minister that they are very unhappy with uh, a number of other elements to this. So, for example, the, um, the family underwent a, a screening test uh, from a company that carried out what are called non-invasive pregnancy tests. So these are tests that uh, try to work out at a very early age, is there an abnormality uh, within the unborn child um, uh, as such? And the, they went and they had this test, and the test obviously proved uh, to be incorrect. Okay, but that comes down to the... That's not been argued against by any, any, anybody here. But the point I'm trying to say here is the family understands now that the state claims agency, which uh, usually indemnifies public bodies against exposure or claims against those public bodies, that the state claims agency is now going to indemnify the private company that carried out this test, and the family are shocked that our money would be public money, taxpayers' money would be used in a manner that would. In other words, if the family sues, it'll be the state that pays. The state, it'll be the state mm. that pays mm-hmm. in, in this situation, even though the test was carried out by a private company uh, initially. So the T-shirt is saying that this is a private issue, that this is, but there are systemic public policy issues at heart here. Uh, and really, there's no need for this back and forth in the doll. All, all, all that the Taoiseach and the, and the Minister for Health need to do is to sit down with the family and to make sure that the family are in the, the driving seat with regards to what happens to them um, and to make sure that this simply doesn't happen again. I asked the Taoiseach that guidelines would be changed in this to ensure that this wouldn't happen again. And the Taoiseach's response to this was that this, uh, the guidelines are nothing got to do with him, that they're, they're for the medical practitioners themselves uh, to design. And that's not the case. There are guidelines in, in a range of different issues. And did the family request an independent investigation? And if so, what was the response to that request? Yeah, the, the family did uh, invest uh, uh, an independent investigation. And what they've been told is that there will be an internal review uh, of the case. And now the Taoiseach used words that there would be uh, an independent uh, review there. Um, but again, you know, the, the language is, 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 is not correct. Uh, this currently is a review and I understand that the HSE and the hospital will be involved in the development of that review. While, as I made the point earlier, Mm. For, for the truth to be achieved, it is the best way to make sure that... But it's an quite often that is the approach taken in contentious matters like this, uh, where a scoping exercise of sorts is uh, the starting point, uh, and then it's decided as to whether it's necessary to escalate it to uh, an investigation or an independent investigation. 
Um, and, 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 and I'm not talking about this particular case here, mm. but very often the opposite is a fact as well, Michael, and, and you'd know this as well as I do. Very often in other sections of Irish society, we have seen uh, where individuals uh, are under pressure with regards an allegation of mm. wrongdoing that the instincts can be to but, actually... Sure, but, be, but, but before jumping to uh, or s- into an investigation, quite often uh, these matters can be dealt with through the scoping exercise uh, and it's decided after that whether to or not uh, conduct an investigation well, and well, what form what that I'm investigation is, would take. What I'm saying is that in my experience mm-hmm. and probably the experience of many of your listeners, if, and I'm not speaking about this mm. specific case in this occasion, but in all other cases, that in the Gardaí and in other elements, that when the people who are involved... And, uh, and I understand it. I, I mean, I, it could be argued that that's a cynical point of view, uh, but I do understand what you're saying and why you're saying it. Uh, it's but, human nature, but, Michael. It's, it is well, human I do, nature. I, I do understand that. But, under, but, under pressure. but I'm sure you'd understand it as well that it, it is possible, theoretically at least, uh, to come to a satisfactory, satisfactory conclusion for everybody uh, by carrying out an initial... Uh, exercise, scoping exercise, uh, an initial look at, at what happened to, to decide where to go from next. Well, uh, my baseline in, in every walk of life is that if there is a serious and credible allegation of wrongdoing, that the people who are at the wrong end of that allegation have no involvement in the investigation. It's very simple. It's very clean. It makes sure that there can never be uh, any influence brought to bear over the investigation. Okay. An investigation is more effective and more likely to, to achieve the objective of the truth if it's fully independent of those who are at the wrong end of an allegation. And, you know, what, what, we're, what we're talking about here is a family who uh, had a child, uh, a dearly wanted child, mm. who was a healthy child. And you've raised and, this. And, and the, the abortion happened at 15 weeks, mm. and they were told afterwards that actually um, the initial... Uh, information that they received that, that the child had a life-limiting condition, well, that, that actually wasn't the case. Okay, and most that. recently you put those claims that the family are making on the Dáil record on Wednesday. Uh, have you heard from the family or their legal representative since then? I have, uh, and I have. The, the, the legal representative of the family has come to me and thanked me uh, for bringing this into the, into the public domain. And um, they were just, they were so frustrated uh, up until now that they simply couldn't. Uh, get this information uh, out there uh, and they felt that they were being stymied both by the um, by the processes within government and in the, in, in the Department of Health and also in the Dáil itself. Okay. Other political parties in the Dáil know this information but chose not to act on this information whatsoever okay. and that's the danger when we have uh, a political system that is uniform in, in its particular views. It means that those who are outside of that uniform view don't have an opportunity to have their voices heard. Okay. And that's why it's really important that we have a diverse um, a, a diverse uh, political spectrum in this country so all the voices can be heard and people who are victims of, of terrible things um, also have okay. a, an opportunity to have their cases heard. Well, well. thank you for speaking to us uh, this morning. Patrick Tobin, uh, the leader of uh, the AIN2 party, is uh, a TD for Meath West. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Uh, The system of uh, direct provision in uh, this country sets human rights at naught. It destabilises and impacts negatively on the 
rights of the child, the rights of families and the rights of individuals subject to the system. This is according uh, to uh, Dr. Liam Thornton of UCD, who was before the Oireachtas Committee on Justice uh, this week, along with NASC and uh, the Children's Rights Alliance. Dr. Thornton suggested that the value of the phrase human rights was questionable uh, when you uh, decide the most intimate and basic aspects of one's life is withdrawn for years and end. Convicted of no crime, he said, international protection applicants are segregated from Irish society and condemned to live a half-life. Direct provision is uh, the system whereby asylum seekers are housed in centres like Mosny and given food uh, and board and uh, have spent many years in many cases in such centres. Tanya Ward of uh, the Children's Rights Alliance joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Tanya, and uh, thanks morning. for joining us. Uh, you were uh, one of uh, the groups in front of uh, the Justice Committee. And indeed, uh, I'm sure uh, you would echo what uh, Dr Thornton told to the members yesterday. That's right. I suppose when we appeared uh, at the Roxas Committee, I suppose what we were trying to highlight is, I suppose, the situation for children in Ireland uh, in, in direct provision. And, I mean, some of the key human rights issues that uh, are happening for them. We also, though, did talk about there have been some improvements over the last couple of years, but we were really trying to get, I suppose, the government to really think big about alternatives to direct provision. Um, that what direct provision looks like at the moment is it's mostly uh, hotel, ex-hotels uh, that used to accommodate around the country that are either empty or vacant um, that tender for the process. Um, and there's a couple of sites like Mosny, obviously the, uh, the ex-holiday accommodation site, um, and at Loan as well. On the side of at Loan, there is uh, about a hundred mobile homes uh, that the state plonked onto a site, uh, and that's managed by a catering company. Um, and that's what it looks like. And when I served on a government working group uh, on direct provision, we travelled around the different centres. And what was very clear, there was a huge variation in what children and young people were experiencing across the country. So I arrived at one centre, um, and the children talked about being hungry. Um, they talked about arriving home from school um, and the only thing available for them to eat would be food that was in a plastic bag that their parents had been given at one o'clock and it might be um, a cold spring roll mm. uh, that had been deep fried, white rice. Um, I mean, the kind of stuff that you really shouldn't feed your kids much, really. You know, it's, mm. it, it, should, it, should, it should be a once or twice a week, but but, but never every day. God, um, I never knew it was that bad. I've often heard complaints about the food in places like Mosny, let's say, and people will uh, outline what sounds somewhat like staying in an all-inclusive hotel where there's plenty of food available, but because you're not choosing what to have or when to have it, it gets very boring and tedious and uh, you don't feel as though you have the kind of options that you would like to have. Yeah, that's right. I mean, what was really interesting was at the centre in Galway, actually, the food, the kitchen was open all day. The children could get hot food all day. And actually, they made a real effort to make healthy food for mm. the children. But this other site, uh, the, the, it was all about making profit. Uh, and what the children were being given, the young people were being given, you know, you wouldn't feed your own children. Mm. And the other thing I suppose the children talked to us about was, you know, if you were living in an institution, I think that's the real 
the real issue here is that we're institutionalising a group of vulnerable people because these are people that are coming from refugee-like situations. Mm. They've there might have been war, there might have been uh, uh, civil unrest in a country. Mm. That some of their, their parents might have been subjected to, to persecution. So when they arrive here, they're quite vulnerable already. Mm. Um, and then you put them in these institutions where they can't cook for themselves, where there's no play facilities. Um, where their parents mightn't be working, you know, it might, might be like this for, it could be four or five, six years. Mm. Um, that's the kind of half-life, I suppose, that Liam Thornton is talking about. Very difficult for people to live like that for a long period of time. Mm. I yeah. have to say, though, there have been some changes over the last couple of years, and I suppose that the most important one from the families I dealt with, because I spoke to children where, and they talked about not having shampoo to wash your hair, like a teenager talked about, you know, yeah. not ha- not being able to wash your hair. You have to use the soap that they're providing in the main in the, in the main bathroom, and the kind of effect that had on her. Um, a mother told me about, um, you know, having to make the choice because you only got nine sixty a week. Uh, for your child, having to make the choice between sending your child to the local hurling club or buying them a bottle of Calpo. You know, that mm. really difficult choices. Uh, and that's it, because the state provides food and board and the assumption is that you don't need much to live on, so you get an allowance and it's traditionally been this very small allowance. Very so, meagre. Uh, yeah. Under and a tenner for a child, under 20 euro for yeah, an adult. Yeah. But that, that increased significantly in the last budget, yeah, didn't it? that yeah. went up to mm. 29.80. Mm. I suppose that the, the last three ministers for social protection, Joan Burton, Leah Racker and Regina Doherty, did increase us and, mm. and it had stayed like that for 15 years. So, mm. I mean, in a way it was a scandal. It was a scandal that you would expect uh, a parent to try and raise their child on 9.60 a week. So I think that's, that's very significant that, that, mm. that, that that's changed. But I think our issue now is if you look at the emergency, the housing crisis that we're in the middle of, um, there are hundreds of people now in emergency facilities uh, that aren't your traditional direct provision uh, hotel or hostel mm. or accommodation centre. Um, and that's what we're a bit worried about. We're worried about there are children there that haven't accessed school. We're worried about the child protection arrangements uh, in, in those places. Um, and we're worried about just the basic welfare because these are these are vulnerable people. Mm. So if they're not linked into the local services, the local GP, we're worried about what might actually be happening to them. And can't afford to move out even when their status has been regularised and uh, they've been given refugee status, for example. That's right. I mean, mm. there's, there's, there's something close to 500 people who already have refugee status um, and want to get out of direct provision, but they are finding it very hard, a bit like uh, anyone else in the housing market at the moment, because really it's private rented accommodation is your only option. Mm. for. So everyone is trying to get private rented accommodation. So they're finding it very difficult uh, to get out. Um, and I suppose the other challenge is that when you've been living in direct provision for so long, you're not used to running a household. So even you, know, you lose all those skills, they have to even start again in terms of learning how to, to, how to run a household. So it, like, it is very challenging for a lot of people coming out of direct provision. Um, but I do think um, you know, there has been a change, there has been a mind shift at government level. But I think the challenge is for them is they're in the middle of a housing crisis. So they're finding it very hard to find alternatives to the direct provision system at the moment. Uh, and it was introduced, uh, they said it would be a system that would be used for six months uh, because there was a bit of a crisis in the country at the time. But that was 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I, I always think about I, I worked in the sector 
uh, when direct provision w- was introduced. Um, and what was very worrying about it at the time was that it, it, when they set it up, it was really about just give people a bed and a meal and that's all they need. They don't need anything else. Um, and so there's no conception that actually you're, you're dealing with people who have a lot of problems. Mm. You might have been living in Syria. You might have seen people killed every day. You might have lost your family. You might have been coming from somewhere like Rwanda where you've just experienced a genocide. Mm. War crimes. Mm. War crimes, absolutely. Mm. And I suppose you have people from lots of different backgrounds being put together in one hotel or one facility. Um, uh, And even people who are lesbian or gay, Mm. the reason you might have left your country was because you're lesbian or gay. Mm. And then you're arriving into a big centre with 100 people and you're potentially with people who think the same thing that Mm. the people do at home about you. Mm. So it was a system that was set up that didn't really take account of the care needs of this very vulnerable group of people. Yeah, I remember once being in a a war-torn part of uh, the world uh, and watching women come over the border who had seen their husbands shot uh, and then they were raped before being set free, if you like. And I suppose that's uh, just uh, the reality of war crimes and the type of experiences that some of the people that we're talking about this morning have undergone. Tanya, we have to leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Tanya Ward is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Children's Rights Alliance. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. The Irish Daily Mail reports uh, today on research from uh, the Alliance for Insurance Reform, which has uh, surveyed 494 of its members and found uh, that insurance costs has risen by 204% on average for them in the past five years alone. This is part of a story which comes under the front page page headline of how can a sprained finger be worth up to €19,000 and apparently this is what is paid out under what's known as uh, the Book of Quantum, which is uh, the template for what should be awarded in personal injury claims. Uh, and in relation uh, to that sprained finger being worth €19,000, they uh, publish uh, the full Book of Quantum, or at least a, a, an awful lot of what people can claim for and the figures uh, that they can claim up to, like uh, the loss of a, a thumb being over €80,000 or minor whiplash, as we've been hearing, uh, is on average around 15000 uh, The figures in the paper today suggest that's 15700 uh, A minor hip sprain, 29600 A minor ankle an- injury, 23100 A dislocated toe uh, will win you an award of 18,300 or you could be awarded up to 14,500 euro for minor food poisoning. So what does all of this mean for local business? In Huckleberry's here alone our insurance has gone up 567% um, over five years and actually over the six years um, had we been paying the premium we were going to be faced with this year it would have went up over a thousand percent which is completely not sustainable. So in January of this year um, we were told that we wouldn't get insurance for the business going forward um, and it was a simple decision either um, close up shop and um, take it lying down or fight it and we've been fighting it ever since. Um, unfortunately during that fighting process um, the landlord um, not knowing what our situation was going to be, uh, put the building up for sale and it has been sold. So um, it wasn't our building, we were leasing the building. So um, Huckleberry's, as we know it, the lovely little place that we've built up over the last six years, will close on the 23rd of June. 
That's Linda Murray, who is a member of uh, the Alliance for Insurance Reform and uh, the owner of Huckleberry's Place Centre in Navin. Linda is on the line. And uh, a very good morning to you, Linda. Uh, you've fought a very long and hard fight, as you've said there in that Facebook message. You're due to close on the 23rd of June, but it's not all doom and gloom. No, it's not all doom and gloom. Um, I suppose as a result of insurance, and I'm, and I'm very similar to a lot of places around the country, you can't plan your future very hard to take out four-year, nine-month leases. It's very hard to decide whether to buy a building or not because you've absolutely no idea what way your insurance is going to be. And I was one of those people. And um, my landlord had to sell the building. And when it came up for sale, my plan has always been that I would be the person to be able to buy it. But because I had absolutely no idea, well, I was told I wasn't going to get insurance. Um, there was no point in me trying to invest in a building where I couldn't get insurance. Um, that was the way it was at that stage. As we all know, through a long and hard battle, um, we have managed to get insurance for over 60 businesses in the country, uh, all in the leisure business, um, through three underwriters in the UK. Um, so I have managed to save the business per se, but not in its location. So we have to move at a huge considerable cost to myself. So it's just one side effect of what can happen because of this insurance. Mm-hmm. I'm livid about the whole thing. Um, I'm obviously very excited that I'm still going to be open and that I'm moving to a different premises, but that's not what the plan was. The plan mm. was to stay where I was and I couldn't do that. Well, feel free to tell our listeners where you're going. God knows you deserve the publicity. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, we're moving to the other side of Mullaboy Industrial Estate um, into the Zone Activity Centre. Um, and uh, work is, there's hammers and everything going on behind me here. There's uh, mm. work happening at the moment. So um, we'll be open uh, on the 8th of July bright new premises um, light smell of fresh paint and a lovely place for kids to come so um, yeah well we hope it's a a great success for you Uh, but uh, obviously uh, this has been a very stressful time Uh, you've uh, spoken to us before about how Huckleberries is your life uh, as such and Mm -hmm. you put everything into it I take it it's been uh, uh, as stressful or or almost as stressful for the owner of the building who uh, also faced great uncertainty um, yeah, I mean, he, you know, he has managed to sell it and there will be somebody else moving mm. in. Not, nothing to do with leisure. Um, but yeah, uh, landlords around the place, owners, uh, business owners, people who have their own buildings and in the leisure industry. And it's not only leisure, it's across, mm. it's across the field. Well, I suppose but the point of making is that these things are never in isolation. Uh, there's always no. knock-on effects. There's Absolutely. your staff, there's the people Absolutely. who use the centre and so on. Absolutely. Um, Michael, mm. I'm not exaggerating when I no. say that I deal with about three to four phone calls a day, every day from businesses around the country. At 7am this morning, uh, just as I got up to get the kids up out of bed, a message flashed up on my phone from a lady just saying, hi, I'm down in Waterford, Um, I'm about to open a business, I've everything ready to go. The last thing I looked at was insurance, didn't think it'd be an issue, I've been told I can't get it. And she's everything ready. Like I'm dealing with those type of phone calls every single day. And I don't mind taking the phone calls because I suppose I'm at the stage where I can give advice or I can offer people to come in under our group scheme. But we shouldn't have to do that. I, sh- I shouldn't have had to go and set up a group scheme with Pali members and Pali committee. We've 86 leisure centres in our um, organisation now. It was 86 businesses that didn't even know each other last year and have had to come together to be a strong group to try and get insurance. I mean, insurance should be like going out and trying to pay your electricity or getting your phone bill. It shouldn't be that you have to get yourself together into a pack, mm. sell yourself uh, across the water, not even be able to get it in Ireland. Like we're putting, we're placing over a million euros worth of premium mm. in the UK. Can't even get it in Ireland. As I mentioned, uh, the Daily Mail has uh, published uh, what can be claimed uh, through personal injury claims or what can be awarded through personal injury yeah. claims uh, uh, in line with the Book of Quantum today. Is that what's at the root of all of this? 
Um, it's definitely a major part of it. Um, and we've been looking for the Judicial Council Bill. I'm sure everybody is, just, like I didn't even know what this was a year ago mm. and everybody's probably tired of listening to it because we're talking about it so much. I always promised five weeks ago um, in a meeting with Minister Charlie Flanagan that the Judicial Council Bill would be enacted by the third week in July. And I'm st- we're still waiting to see the amendments. Um, I'm still positive that we will see it by the third week in July. But what this basically means is that um, a group of judges will come together I think about seven judges in total, uh, will come together and they will be able to um, decide amongst themselves what way awards should be set mm. and basically um, reenact the, the book of quantum. So um, what we'd be looking for is for the awards to come down considerably. Um, like that minor injuries deserve minor awards and not the way they are at the moment. We all know, we've heard it over and over again, we're five times more than the UK. Um, in some of the countries, whiplash isn't even recognised. Um, so mm. we just want... Nobody disputes when somebody gets injured, fairly injured, by uh, a from a court. Well, nineteen thousand euro for a sprained finger does exactly. warrant a front page headline. Exactly, now. exactly. and that's that's the way it, that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. And to be honest mm-hmm. with you, you can get something like that for a bruise as well. These mm-hmm. are called soft tissue injuries, mm-hmm. and these are the main injuries, Michael, that we need to that we need to get down. Mm-hmm. Because in play centres and leisure centres, you know, when you're going out and having a bit of fun, there's a big chance that you'll bang your head mm-hmm. or you know, uh, get a cut or something like that if you run into somebody or something happens where it's not the fault of the business. The last thing we want to see is those people going out there trying to get 19,000. Mm. And if the awards come down, there'd be a less likely chance of people going to try and get awards. And the Minister has announced this judicial review and uh, I think he's only just done that this week. Uh, but uh, it's not a new issue, uh, as you very well know, no, over the last five years. Bill. Yeah. yeah, you've seen your insurance increase by a thousand percent, I think you said, right. uh, over the last uh, five years. But yeah. if you were waiting for the politicians who've been talking about this for years to act, uh, you'd actually be closing permanently on the 23rd of June. Definitely. Like, I, um, I, we have saved 60 businesses, as I've said. That's not because of any reform or anything that the government have done. That's because we have come together, formed a group, and managed to get premium from the UK. That's not because of any reform. But we're going to be in the same boat in one or two years' time, Michael, if there's no reform. That's why this Judicial Council Bill is very important. It's very important for it to be enacted on the third week of July. It's very important for the Book of Quantum to come down. We also need the Guard of Fraud Unit. In other words, that if you are seen to have a fraudulent or an exaggerated case, that you can go to the guards and that, um, it, you know, somebody can be prosecuted over it. That's very important, that the guards are investigating fake or exaggerated or fraudulent claims. Mm. Um, we also need transparency because we don't understand our insurance. Um, when you're getting out business insurance, especially in the leisure industry, sometimes you don't even know what your premium is until 24 hours before it's due, Michael. I mean, you're knocking on the doors and you're asking a month before, what is it going to be, what is it going to be? And you find out in some cases a day or a week before. And when claims are settled, you don't even know along the way that a claim has been settled on your behalf. You don't find out that transparency is not there. So we need that as well. Mm. And we also need the duty of care established so that when a parent or yourself comes into a leisure business, who is the duty of care with? And if you're coming in and you know that you're going to do something that's a little bit risky, that you're not going to come back and claim in the business if they haven't been negligent. Okay, and be these responsible little for your own actions or the actions of your children. Exactly. Okay, Linda, we've got to leave it there. Thank you no indeed problem, for joining Michael. us Thank this you. morning. Linda Murray, Board of Alliance for Insurance Reform, Director and Owner of Huckleberry's Play Centre in Navan. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to everybody listening in. Have you got me? I think we do. <laughs> all right, yeah. That's very important that people can hear me now, Michael. Mm, yeah. Tom, it's I, one of the old tricks. <laughs> 
Oh, it's, uh, sorry, it didn't work. It didn't work. Tom from Dundalk says, Michael, I know direct provision probably has its disadvantages, but what other system will work better? At least people fleeing countries are being fed, given a roof over their heads and a chance to live in peace. Is that not something? Well, maybe it is, yeah. Um, but for years and years, uh, I think it is uh, very questionable. As we heard, people become institutionalised. Uh, mm. There are arguments. Uh, well, uh, we've had a, a change uh, in policy where people can uh, work up to recently, but there are arguments uh, that uh, they should just become part of uh, the general population and have their cases uh, dealt with far quicker. Mary feels that we should be more sympathetic to those who have to leave their native countries behind because of war and persecution. She feels it cannot be good for them to be in direct provision for so long. She can understand how people would become institutionalised. She says, if you've ever spent a long period of time in hospital, you know what that feeling is like. Yeah, that's true. Then moving on to your interview with uh, Linda Murray just regarding insurance. Patrick from County Meath phoned in and says, I don't know that lady personally, but I've heard her on your show and I really admire her from afar. I think many people would have thrown the towel in at this stage. But she's there, Michael, not just fighting for her own business, but now fighting for others too. It's terrible how hard it is for people who run their own business. They seem to be knocked back at every turn Mm. and this is not what should happen happen. We should be encouraging entrepreneurs in this country and feels that something has to be done about insurance. Mm, well, I think we are encouraging entrepreneurs. Well, it depends on what you call an entrepreneur. I mean, there's some people who are making a business out of sore thumbs, it would seem. €19,000 being awarded in personal injury claims, uh, as we've been hearing, for people who are complaining of having a sprained thumb. Very, very interesting, yes, uh, to yes. say the least. And uh, not too surprising when you hear of claims like that at uh, Linda Murray tells us of uh, an increase of 1,000% in her premium for uh, the last five years or over the last five years, as uh, the case may be. Uh, let's go to the roads uh, because uh, an awful lot of people have lost their lives on the roads in the course of the last year. 146 lives were lost on Irish roads. It's a shocking statistic. And every single life that was lost will be mourned and has to be seen as a tragedy. But it's a great improvement on where we were back in 1998 when the government introduced the first road safety strategy. Back then there were some 450 eight deaths on Irish roads compared to that figure of 146 last year. We'll talk about this now with Moya Murdoch, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer with uh, the Road Safety Authority of Ireland. Good morning to you, Moya, and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, It is a a dramatic reduction of some 68%. That's correct, Michael. We have to recognise progress when we do make progress. And just 20 years ago, as you called out those figures there, a shocking 458 people were being killed on our roads. And it was it, it was more than that even a few years before that. So collaboratively and together with a lot of other stakeholders, such as the Transport Infrastructure Ireland, the local authorities, uh, the Garda, the, the public themselves, we've been able to plot a, a pathway there to... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Prove road user behavior, and people have changed behavior. They are listening to the message, and they are being much more compliant. But as you said, 146 people were killed last year, and this year we got off to a very bad start. Mm. The numbers are up on last year. There is still... Um, a possibility that we'll try and bring that down again before the end of the year but you, the job is never done really that's the, the message that you can't fix this and it stays fixed we just need to keep on with the messaging and with the enforcement and with obviously other improvements to infrastructure and roads as well all right. Every life lost on the roads is a life too many. 146 lives lost in 2018. 146 lives too many, quite obviously, but a, a significant improvement. Why do you think there has been such an improvement? As you say, that figure of 458 back in 1998 uh, compared better with years previous to that. I mean, I think if you go back uh, to the 70s, we saw some of uh, the highest numbers of fatalities on Irish roads uh, when there were fewer cars uh, with less ability uh, to drive fast and that sort of thing. That is true and far, as you say far fewer cars uh, speed wouldn't have been necessarily an issue. I think one of the biggest change, changes and lifesavers that we've seen introduced over the years would be the seatbelt. The seatbelt undoubtedly has saved many many lives and then even today it's still beggars belief that sadly I think it's 34% over 30% of car occupants who were killed in crashes last year were not wearing a seatbelt. So something as simple as getting the seatbelt on when you get in would make a massive difference. People can walk away from a, spe- from a crash where one, in, uh, one or two individuals mm. w- won't because they don't have the belt on. It can be a judgment error. It can be intentional. It can be as a result of maybe taking alcohol at the mm. same time and you're making the wrong decision there. but And I think that was quite possibly the yeah. case if you go back to like 1978, which I think was probably the worst year on Irish roads. 628 people killed. Cars probably didn't exceed 40 miles an hour at the time. There were no motorways uh, and it was a, a different world in many ways. Very different in terms of how we looked on drinking and getting behind the wheel of a car. That is correct, yes. Um, I think there was anecdotal rumours uh, and stories that five don't drive that sort of philosophy I think it was an ad <laughs> yeah absolutely and yeah. people now really have matured in their understanding and realise how alcohol does impair, does impair the night of a, a night out or the morning after depending on how much you've taken so you just can't mix the two and drugs are a big issue now mm. today they are emerging as a, a concern and a challenge that we're going to have to deal with but way back, um, obviously, the speeds weren't as great, but the cars themselves and the, the road infrastructure was very unforgiving. We have um, the local authorities working very closely with the Transport Infrastructure Ireland, or TII, to engineer out bad bends, dangerous spots, black spots. As We saw a lot of black mm. spots on our roads years ago. We don't see that so much now. We do see much, uh, much more um, behavioural uh, forgiving uh, structure now and and we do recognise that people make mistakes and what we need to do is make sure that 
we can make vehicles as uh, safe for vulnerable road users as well as mm. the drivers. And, and that is going to be the focus of uh, the next strategy or to a large degree. This is a, a strategy that will run over the decade from 21 to 2030 uh, and uh, it'll hope to improve on uh, the progress that we've made uh, since uh, the first strategy in 98 and a 68% reduction in fatalities. Uh, apparently we rank well internationally. We heard yesterday that uh, our progress is uh, the fifth best in the OECD countries and we're the third best European country in terms of road safety but we need to do more in terms of pedestrians and cyclists. We do indeed um, Michael. We have to increase the priority given to that road user group and especially in light of the big increase, the big uptake in cycling in this country is very popular just as a pastime but also as a an essential mode of transport mm. and Unfortunately, there's no denying the infrastructure, the, the cycle lanes. Mm. The we need cycle lanes for bicycles yeah, to go, yeah. drive on safely. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of um, local authorities and town uh, councils introducing 30 kilometre in our zones now across the country, and they too will help both pedestrians and cyclists. Mm. So those are the measures that will need to be adopted. We will absolutely need to look at the inf- investment. It will take money. But um, we can continue to improve and we must recognise attitudes have changed over the years. There is a much less tolerant uh, approach from society now for bad behaviour. I think Mm. it's undeniable people will frown greatly on anybody who thinks it's okay to have a few drinks and get behind the wheel of a car. Those days are gone. But we do need to look at the basics as well. We need to look at things like enforcement too. We need the the uh, money put into Angarda Shikana, they need the, the, the vehicles, they need the technology. The, they have um, the new mobility project rolling out now with 2,000 mobile devices going to be given to all frontline roads policing guards to show to be able to detect on the roadside when they have a driver there who may be disqualified because we've heard a lot about that in recent times, the recidivist behaviour there. There's a small cohort of drivers who once disqualified will continue to drive and they will be detected now and they will be, they can end up jailed and sometimes that's the only way to stop these people driving but it will be caught, they can rest assured about that. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Moya, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Moya Murdoch is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the Road Safety Authority of Ireland. Now let's go back uh, to the phones and indeed uh, the text messages that have been coming to us. I hope you have some more comments. For I have indeed. Mm. Just staying with insurance if we can, Jim says, why have we got this problem, Michael, with insurance in Ireland? Because of our culture. If someone falls, the first thing people ask is, who can I sue? Mm. This needs to be knocked on the head. If someone is genuinely injured, fair enough. But 19,000 for a sprained finger. Come on, Michael. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. I, 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 I think I just stood on my finger. <laughs> and another listener, instead of being able to concentrate and build up their business, people like Linda are having to use their valuable time on trying to get insurance to stay open. Ridiculous. Why is the government not on this? Mm. Sean says he doesn't hold out much hope for, for the government helping businesses in relation to insurance. He says, Michael, how many times have you discussed on your show about car insurance? Mm. Uh, we There was lots of discussion and debate about it last year uh, nothing has improved yep. insurance premiums are still going up even if you don't have an accident or have no penalty points it's a mm. disgrace okay. 
Uh, just if I can go yep. to one or two more. Ava phoned in yesterday following your interview with Kevin Callan, mm. uh, the independent councillor, as to what was happening, his extra seat yeah. on Louth County Council. She says she's been following this story with interest. And her comment is that how can he get away with this? Mm. She feels that he seems to be, from listening to the interview, he seems to be proposing co-opting somebody who will just go along with exactly what Kevin wants. Am I to take it that if Declan Power is co-opted onto Louds County Council, he has to do basically what Kevin Callan says? No. He can't be a councillor no. in his no. own right? Does he have to mm. vote exactly the same no. way? No. 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 <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he, it'll be his seat. I mean, if, if, if he gets the seat, it'll be his seat. Uh, and uh, obviously, uh, he'll have a free mind, and I'm sure he's uh, well capable of uh, using his own judgment uh, to come to decisions. Uh, but I think what Kevin Callum was saying was that you had to be an independent uh, councillor if he was to assume the seat. And this is the other Mm. point raised Mm. by Ava. She says Mm. he went to great lengths, Kevin Callan, to say that it was very important, the independent Mm. element of it. Well, there was an independent candidate there, Frank Godfrey, and he didn't Mm. go for that. Yeah, and Kevin Callan said uh, that he didn't want to uh, give it, he didn't name Frank Godfrey, but he said he didn't want to give it uh, to a candidate that had lost their seat. And uh, obviously he was speaking about Frank Godfrey uh, in respect of uh, Drogheda Rural. All right, uh, we're going to be uh, talking uh, with uh, another councillor, uh, recently elected councillor, about living in a family with her father married to seven women in just a couple of minutes' time. Uh, I think uh, people will find this uh, quite interesting. But uh, thanks uh, for that, Marie, and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. We're going to hand uh, the programme over now to independent news and media, or at least uh, to the Floating Voter, which is the political podcast for independent.ie. It's worth listening uh, to the latest podcast from Floating Voter. It makes for fascinating listening, far too long to play in its entirety on the programme, but we will listen to a little bit of it now. Yemi Adaningu is a recently elected councillor in Navan and she's been speaking to Kevin Doyle. I come originally from Nigeria and um, I come from a polygamous home and that would mean that my father was married to more than one woman. My father would have been married to seven women and he had 27 children. And I was number 16. Wow. Um, <laughs> Almost perfectly <laughs> middle child. <laughs> Absolutely, right there in the middle. And uh, my mom was the last wife and she had six girls of her own, her biological children. And the wife before her had left um, my dad and left behind four of her five children. And they were girls. So my mother raised 10 girls. And for oh. people who didn't know... Um, that four were in hers. You you couldn't tell. She Seven wives and ten daughters. Yes. <laughs> we were more than ten girls, but yeah. for my father. But my mom raised ten girls, and right. six were biological. And what part of Nigeria would this be? Is this um, Ogun State? Uh, my father was from Ogun State. Yeah, oh, my uh, mother what was he do from. For a living, is this kind of a. My father? Yeah. Oh, he, he worked in. The, he first worked in the police force, mm. and then he retired and worked with Shell. Um, for a number of years uh, as a senior manager with as head of security. 
And yes, so he did have uh, a little bit of money. Mm. And in, in Nigeria at the time, I think people are becoming wiser now, but in Nigeria mm. at the time, the way to show off your wealth was by the number of women you had as wives, you know. Mm. So yeah, there he was. <laughs> and so... At Christmas, me, it must be difficult to do you know contact what? everybody. And say, <laughs> do you know, in my house, we yeah. never need any extra person for parties. My house yeah. is always the party zone. Christmas was mm. just amazing in my household mm. at the time. Um, but of course, we did have our challenges, mm. one of which would have been that um, because my mom had only girls, uh, she wasn't favored in the household. Uh, there was an expectation for her to have boys. And that's why she ended up with six girls, because every time she tried, she thought she was going to have a boy. And on one of the occasions where we, we had a big family meeting, we would usually have a family meeting. It was a big clan. Um, an uncle and um, one of my uncles and auntie had said to my mom, oh, you're not going to have a boy for a brother. Uh, so you think that these girls of, of yours are going to be anything. Well, they're going to end up on the streets of Lagos, Lagos then being the capital of Nigeria. Mm. And they're going to sell themselves as prostitutes. And that's all they're going to be good for. And my mother cried. And for me, that was a turning point. I went to my mother and told her to stop crying. And I promised her that none of her girls will ever end up on the streets, whatever the city is, and that we will work hard and make her proud, so proud that our uncles, we wish we were their daughters. And the rest is history today. All of my sisters, I'm proud of them. They've all made something of their lives. And that's why... I chose to work with people, um, supporting young girls and women, because most of them would probably have been in my shoes. They would never have been given a chance to become anything but for support and encouragement, mm. you know. When did you decide that to, to leave Nigeria and come to Dublin? Um, I came to Ireland in 2000, mm. the year 2000, 19 years ago. And it was for Pastures Green. I first started working in IBM. Um, I started working in manufacturing and then moved up to shadow in cost accounting and left in 2010 in cost accounting. And um, I wanted to start my own thing at the time. And then I started uh, an NGO called Shiro's Global. Mm. And what we did was to support and encourage women. We inspire, we empower, and we impact women and young people for positive change. And that's what really got me involved in the community in Navin, mm. you know, and um, uh, I suppose it, that... It must have been some transition, though, from the life you had in Nigeria to, to land in Dublin in the early 90s, which wasn't the most exciting place at the time either, but, but a very, very different place. Completely different. I'll give you an example. My first Christmas here was totally shocking. Uh, in Nigeria, like, like I've said before, Christmas is the best time of the year for anybody in Nigeria, especially children. And then I come to Ireland in the year 2000, my first Christmas here. I'd gotten dressed, went uh, out, stood at the bus stop and was waiting for a bus to go visit a new friend that I'd met. And I waited first 30 minutes. Nothing happened. The bus didn't come. An old lady walked by. This is on the 25th. On the 25th of December 2000. (laughs) An old lady walked by, came back again about 15 minutes later and asked me, are you waiting on the bus? I said, yes. Well, you'll be waiting forever because it's coming. I said, why? She said, it's Christmas, honey. Did you book a taxi earlier? I said, no. So I went back home, got in my PJs, and I was just about to have a cup of tea. And then somebody bangs on my door and goes, your house is on fire. Oh, God. Jesus. So I lived in a flat then where it had underground and the beans were underground. And oh, somebody God. obviously had been smoking and it threw in the stub in and it got into one of the beans and oh. 
backfire. You've had some better Christmases. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that so. year, I said never again. And at, since then, my yeah. house is always full at Christmas. Like yeah. you would have the good part of 40 people in my house at any given time at Christmas. Food everywhere. We brought yeah. Nigeria to Ireland for Christmas. <laughs> I promised you it was a, a fascinating interview and uh, I'm sure you're not disappointed. Uh, that's uh, Fine Gael Councillor Yemi Adanungu who has been speaking with Kevin Doyle on uh, The Floating Voter which is uh, the political podcast on independent.ie. We often joke, don't we, about uh, families uh, starting football teams but to have seven wives and 27 children really is incredible and very, very very different to what a, a lot of us have been used to in this country. Coming from Nigeria, of course, Yemi has made history being the first black person to, black woman to be uh, elected to, to a local authority, the first black female councillor in this country. And she's been telling Kevin Doyle a little bit about her experience in politics as a black politician. Um, generally, it was very positive. People were, I have to be honest, people were warm and nice and encouraging. Um, but there were a few who just couldn't understand why a black woman would be in politics and represent them in Navin. Or, you know, um, you I don't mean, have a Navin accent, that's for sure. There's <laughs> a little tinge there, I think. Well, no, don't I'm listen, I'm a Navin girl, me. <laughs> I mean, I had this one person ask me, um, you think you're Irish now because you're running in politics? And I said, well, this, this is interesting, sir. This is the one election where I don't have to be Irish to run. Mm-hmm. But just so you know, I am Irish and I am running in the elections. And somebody had asked me if I thought I was intelligent enough to run. Uh, another person had said, um, so now, he said several things, and then he said, so now um, I want to take their job and become a politician. And I said, well... I, I don't need to take any job. I am doing the job. I asked him if he had family outside of Ireland, and he said yes, very proudly so. And he said, I asked if they were working wherever they were, and he said yes, they were working, contributing to the economy. And I said, well, I suppose they're not taking those jobs. And then he caught himself. And he, re- I mean, and he thought about what he was saying for the first time. So I did get the few odd ones there. Do you think in the 19 years you've been in Ireland, has it gotten better or worse? It's gotten worse. And that's worse. the reality. Oh, yes. Most people would worse. think we, we've, we're a bit more educated and tuned into the world now. Well, you would expect that. But the reality is that um, you're seeing more and more of it because it's not dealt with. Mm-hmm. That will be my opinion. It's not been dealt with. We're sweeping it under the carpet. Um, we're saying to ourselves, no, we're fine. We're actually dealing with it well. You know, we're not that bad. Mm. But when you don't deal with issues like this, it escalates. And my worry would be that more and more people will become influenced by it. People who ordinarily wouldn't have made it an issue will begin to think about it and make it an issue. And then you see more of it happening. So we do need a hate crime legislation. We need it addressed immediately, you know, otherwise. Are, are we complacent then? I mean, because we, we made such a big deal out of the fact that we have a Taoiseach who's the son of an immigrant and is gay. And therefore, sure, Ireland, it's a great place. We, we're, we, you can be whatever you want. Well, yes, Ireland is a great place. You can be whatever you want. It still doesn't remove from the fact that we have challenges and we have issues that have to be addressed. You know, we cannot cover the reality of this kind of issues mm. with some of the things that have been achieved. No, we have to deal with call call a spade a spade mm. and deal with it as well, it is. Is there something 
on this particular issue that you hope to achieve in the next five years? Well, or is your presence there enough? Is that is that in itself a statement? Uh, well, the presence is a statement. Plus, um, I'm hoping to to give people a different orientation, a reorientation, an understanding that everyone brings something to the table. Everyone has something to contribute. And we have to embrace that. And a reminder that we all also have families somewhere, some other place in the world. And they're also doing something in that country, wherever they're at. So for me... It will be working with the people of Meath every time I meet people at the door. It will be encouraging them to be more open, more accepting, if they are not, and to encourage them to continue to be, if they are already. Recently elected Fine Gael councillor Yemi Adenuga in conversation with Kevin Doyler. Thanks to Independent News and Media for giving us permission to play part of that interview for you. I have to say it is one of the most interesting political interviews I've heard in recent times. Compelling listening and I suggest you listen to all of that podcast, the Floating Voter podcast, which is available on independent.ie Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. The reality of uh, becoming homeless and being homeless is mapped out for us in a Focus Ireland study published this week. Family homelessness in Dublin causes housing histories and finding a home is based on interviews with some 237 families. The interviews took place over January and February of this year. Connor Culkin, communications officer with Focus Ireland, is on the line. Good morning to you, Connor, and thanks for taking the time to be with us. Uh, what did these families have to say to you? Well, what many of these families have to say, as you said, we interviewed 237 of these families and, and, and 70% of them reported that their last stable home was in the private rental sector. Now, the, the report shows that the majority of these families had stable housing histories and they came from uh, stable backgrounds. What also this report shows us that Many of these families who were previously, who were homeless, who were, it was only up until the crash that they actually experienced homelessness issues. And and so this report is suggesting that one of the reasons why many families, in fact, the current number stands at over 1,700 families now are homeless across Ireland. That's a nearly 300% increase in the last four years. And what it's showing us is that many families have come into difficulty, particularly in the last five or six years uh, due to the recession. Right. And is it that they were in rented accommodation, that lease or tenancy ended for whatever reason, and they weren't able to find somewhere else because of the cost of renting? Yeah, I mean, what their report also shows is that over half of these families became homeless because their landlords decided to stop renting out the property. This may be because the landlord decided to sell the property, move back in with their family, or maybe the property may be repossessed by the bank. But what's also what Focus Island is also seeing right across the country, and including areas such as Lowe's, is that particularly in the private rental sector, rents are going increasing, increasing, increasing all the time. And frequently what is happening is that the the level of wages are not going up. So as you can imagine, it is particularly difficult if you have a young family to provide for when the the cost is increasing, but your wages are are not rising as well. And Mm -hmm. what the report also found, and it's an important point to stress, is that when you're in the private rental sector, 
you're often looking at various ways to get financial assistance. And what this report found that of the 237 families who we surveyed, uh, over three quarters, 75%, attempted to gain access to the housing assistance payment, or HAP. But unfortunately, what this report also sheds light on is that nearly half of landlords were reluctant to rent property to HAP tenants. So this is another difficulty Mm. that families are experiencing. Right. And there's two sides to that story, if you like, and uh, two points of view that need to to be looked at. Back up a a little bit there, because you said that landlords have stopped renting out properties for various reasons. It's one thing uh, if uh, the property is being repossessed of the landlord's little choice in that. Uh, But why are landlords choosing to stop renting? out. We quite often hear of the greedy landlord and how they're raking it in and all that sorts of things, uh, living off vulnerable people and so on. Uh, But landlords themselves complain that it's too vulnerable and it's too costly. No, and it's a really, really important point to stress that Focus Ireland are not anti-landlord. We acknowledge Mm. the important role that landlords have to play, and there needs to be a certain amount of properties in the private rental Mm. sector, obviously, that landlords do provide. I'm sorry, Conor, I beg your pardon, I think I said too vulnerable. What I meant to say was landlords argue it's too bureaucratic and too costly, and this comes down to the HAP scheme. Yes, and, and landlords are, are kind of coming across many different problems with different schemes. And, and one of the reasons with the HAP scheme, landlords do sometimes feel that uh, they would be reluctant to take uh, a tenant on the HAP scheme because sometimes they feel that the tenant is coming from a background that they've had previous difficulties with other tenancies. Often that, that is not the case, but Focus Island really must stress that mm. this report is just stating evidence. This report is mm. not a report that is criticising landlords in any way. We are just, we interviewed, as I said, 237 people from a range of different this backgrounds. this is their experience. And the evidence yeah. that we mm-hmm. came up with. Yeah. And technically it's illegal to refuse a tenant because they're on the HAP scheme, but we know that it happens in reality. And there's many reasons for it. There are those perceptions, uh, as you say, that landlords have. But there are some real problems uh, as well that landlords have experienced. No, absolutely. And landlords do, you know, experience uh, problems from frequently. Uh, there are tenants who can be disruptive to their neighbours. There are tenants who also will not pay their rent on time. Mm-hmm. And it is completely understandable for circumstances for landlords to protect the other tenants maybe living in their area. Well, most, of, m- may, most it, of the rent it, is paid from the council, from the local authority to the landlord. Uh, but the, land, the, the tenant has to pay something to the the council as well. If they don't pay the council, the council doesn't pay the landlord. No, that's that's right, and and it's really important to stress that that there must be there must be harmony and there must be co- cooperation from everybody. And and Focus Island really acknowledges the difficulty, mm. also that landlords have to face. Landlords across the country are experiencing difficulty with their properties as well. So it's really important, and I want to stress to your listeners, many of whom are landlords, that we, we you know the private rental sector needs landlords as well. We are mm. in a country, we are a capitalist society. Mm. We have landlords who are perfectly entitled to. Have have property and perfectly entitled to do what they want with their mm. property. And it is just that these are the figures that they are being presented to And us landlords well. will tell you they've got perfectly good properties, properties they'd live in themselves, but the council yeah. comes along, carries out an inspection, and they have to change what they believe are perfectly good windows, for example. 
No, and and it's interesting you make that point. I mean, I was in the housing, uh, I was in the housing joint Oireachtas committee gallery on Tuesday, and and Fergus O'Dowd, uh, the the TD for, for Louth, mm. he kind of he made that point that there are many that there are many buildings uh, in Louth that could be that could be um, four tenants, but are currently lying empty. And you know, he also experienced you know there there is an importance for, for landlords too. But you know, I just you know I just want to I want to uh, to uh, just stress that. The point locally, I want to mm. just give you an interesting point locally for Laos and about the number of homeless adults in the last 12 months. If you look at uh, April of 2018, these are figures according to the Department of Housing. So there are 124 adults who were homeless in Laos in 2018. Fast forward, 2019, April, that number has shot up to 163. So it's an important point to stress that homelessness is not just a Dublin issue. It is affecting issues right across the country. And Focus Island really is uh, calling on the government uh, to really uh, build more social housing and there needs to be more action on this front. And to stop relying on landlords. uh, And it would seem... To some degree, uh, I'm not sure if you agree with this, Conor, but it would seem to some degree that the regulations are are forcing uh, the accidental landlords out of the market and the result is the greedy landlords that we talk about, these corporations moving in with multiple Mm. properties to rent. Absolutely, and, and and the problem with the housing crisis at the moment is that there is is there is too much of a reliance on the private uh, rental sector, and we we're calling on the government, and we have frequently called on the government to build more social housing. And it must be stressed; it is important to stress that the government are doing all a lot of work in this area. But we believe the amount of social housing that's being built is not enough. So if you could just take, if I just give you a metaphor, Mm. for example, everyday Focus Ireland helps one family uh, leave homelessness. But if you can imagine a room with 10 families, everyday one family leaves that room of homelessness. But two more families enter the room and it becomes even more crowded and even more crowded. And that's what's happening in the property market, whether it's private rental or whether it's social housing. The amount of people the amount of families who are becoming homeless, there is simply not enough accommodation available. And that's why we firmly believe that the government needs to be more ambitious with their targets, Mm. particularly with building social housing. Well, they have their targets. They're throwing everything at it. They're asking us to be patient. But you're saying to such a degree that we really won't see an improvement for two or three years. Well, unfortunately... (laughs) At the current rate, that is, that is the case. I mean, Focus Ireland, along with many other charities, homeless charities, have called for this. But it is encouraging when you have state organisations such as the Human Rights Commission, such as the Ombudsman for Children, who are also saying this, that there is not enough housing being built. And it was a really interesting point in the Oireachtas committees that were during the week that, I mean, the amount of children now that are becoming homeless is, is absolutely, it's staggering. The number now is, it stands at 4,000 children. And the long-term effects that this is going to have for children growing up in various different areas. That's yeah, ridiculous. It, I mean, that really, research really, from the British academics last week saying that children can't crawl, they can't talk at a, a stage yeah. in their development where they should be able to crawl or talk or whatever it is because of the anxiety that the family is experiencing and the lack of space that they're experiencing. And this is absolutely true. And a point that was made in uh, the Oireachtas Committee for Children uh, during the week was that 
in the first thousand days of a child's development from when they're born, that is when the certain character traits come into a child as they grow up, as they transition as a teenager to adulthood. So if they're experiencing a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress at a young age, that can cause big problems later in life. And it is absolutely crucial that the support is given for children. And this support, we believe, has to be through building homes and for for a child and a family to have a a nice, comfortable bed and a roof over their head to sleep at night, and which is very important, which is stable for them as well. Okay, rudimentary stuff. Connor. we leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Connor Culkin is uh, the Communications Officer with Focus Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. The crisis text line, uh, which is uh, to be launched uh, later this year and funded by the HSE, is currently seeking to recruit some 300 volunteers. Uh, We'll learn more about uh, the service itself and what is expected of the volunteers now by speaking with Ian Power, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Crisis Text Line. Good morning to you, Ian, and thanks uh, for joining us. I suppose, uh, to some degree, uh, the service speaks for itself. Uh, This is a tech service for people who are in crisis. For sure. Um, We also run a service called SpunOut.ie and a few years ago we noticed lots of young people who were on the website late at night looking at crisis content, mental health content and really what they were saying to us was that they were looking for something in real time, somebody that they could talk to, that could listen to them um, while perhaps other services weren't open or available. So um, really we looked internationally to see you know, surely there's another country that's doing this and doing it well and doing it in a medium that young people prefer and like, which is mm. through kind of text and instant message. And we found Crisis Text Line. So it operates in the US, in Canada and the UK, and we're delighted to be bringing it to, to Ireland this summer. Right. Uh, and tell us about how it operates elsewhere, uh, because uh, you're somebody who has a, a lot of experience with positive health issues, mental health issues for young people with uh, spun out or, or, or bringing positive positivity to their mental health, as uh, the case may be, and young people generally through your work with uh, the National Youth Council for that matter. Uh, but uh, I guess when I first saw the idea of a text service for people who are in crisis, I, I did wonder, uh, is it uh, something uh, that can delve into something as complicated as a mental health problem? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the medium of text is perfect for having conversations about difficult subjects because really what happens is young people feel that it's a very private medium and they don't need to find a safe space to be able to make a phone call and like they might to a helpline. They can do it from anywhere and often in the US and UK, for instance, they'll have young people texting in from school or college mm. um, and they're doing it in the knowledge that no one else is, is able to overhear what they're talking about. And really what, what is great about um, doing it in a medium that young people are used to and want to use is that they feel really kind of comfortable getting to the nub of the issue pretty quickly. Um, what we know from our Healthline colleagues is that sometimes on the phone it takes a little bit of time for, for younger people to kind of get to the crux of the issue, whereas mm. with text it's a medium that they get straight into to what's going on for them. Um, yes, it's a, it's a medium that it's not always possible to, you know, distill tone and to understand lots of other things that you mm. might over the phone, but we have to understand that we have to reach young people where they're at and, and certainly in the US and in the UK, you know, young people are, are using this service more than others because it's something that they feel comfortable with. And so what we have done is adapted the model that you would have for a traditional helpline to mm. this model so that's 
um, so that we're able to reach those young people and support them in, in a way that they're they're looking for. Okay, pardon the analogy, but I, I mean, I suppose we'd all be used to the phrase uh, of talking somebody down from the edge of a cliff or talking them out of jumping over the edge of the building, as the case may be. Can you talk somebody out of uh, a suicidal crisis? Yeah, so or the, the text them out of a suicidal crisis, more to the point. Yeah, absolutely. So the way our system works is that a young person will text in to us and um, we will send them a quick auto-reply asking them what's going on for them. And then they will reply to us. And, and as I said earlier, they will jump into that first message. They will tell us everything that's going on for them. Um, and what we do then is our algorithm scans that message for keywords that have previously indicated somebody who's at, at, at risk of suicide or, you know, you know, who's going through a very serious and moment of crisis and it'll just put those people up to the top of the queue so that we're helping those people first we aim to help those people within a minute and we aim to to go to everybody within five minutes so it's a really responsive service and our aim is to recruit as many volunteers as we can to enable that to happen and what happens then after that is the the volunteer is talking to uh, the young person and they're building rapport initially so you know they might exchange first names or they might um you know just talk about you know kind of what's going on um, initially, and then they'll kind of delve into why is the young person texting? What is mm. this, the problem that they're experiencing? They'll talk about what is the goal? Like, what, what do you, what do they want to achieve? Are they looking to keep themselves safe for a period? Are they looking for information about some other services in their area that might be helpful in the longer term? And then it's about problem solving. So it's about identifying what are the things that work for that young person? What are the things, as you talked mm. about earlier in terms of positive mental health, mm. what are the things that are, are good for their mental health? And thinking about, well, how can you do more of those things or how can you make time for those things in your life to to, to kind of, uh, I guess, guard against some of those issues? Because one of the, the key issues for young people that's, that's linked to self-harm, for instance, is lack of sleep. So, you know, it's really important that you're being proactive about getting enough sleep in order to, to kind of counter. And obviously, look, mm. the, you know, the self-harm urges might still be there. But what we know is that, you know, lack of sleep exacerbates it. So it's about kind of mm. problem solving, talking through what are the things that you could possibly do. Um, and then it's very modern in, in so many senses. I mean, when you talk about the algorithms, it's a relatively high spec technology gauging how somebody should be prioritized in terms of how they're dealt with. Uh, and when the machines do that job for you, you said we will make contact with them and we will discuss this, that and the other, depending on the situation. But who are we? This is uh, the volunteers uh, that you're looking to recruit at the moment. What type of people are you looking for, in other words? Yeah, absolutely. So we're looking for about 300 people to join us initially just to get the service up and running. And we're looking for people who are non-judgmental, so who who are, you know, open and open-minded and are not going to kind of take issue with anything that a texter might say in terms of their sexuality, their race, maybe their religion. Um, so really non-judgmental is the first piece. The ability to listen then is second. So um, really you have to understand um, that you're not there to try to fix someone's problems. You're there to listen and you're there to hear what the person is saying. So um, that's really, really important. And obviously, the online training that we put you through, um, you know, teaches you how to be a better listener. But you kind of have to come to this open to listening. You can't, you know, kind of come to this with a, with the desire to try to fix everybody's problems. Um, and so those are the kind of two key things, really. You don't require any qualifications. We put you through a six-week, 30-hour training online. Mm. It's pretty difficult. Um, but it's, 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 it should 
be. And and we also put you through a reference check and, a, and obviously the guard clearance vetting check mm-hmm. as well. Well, I take um, it you're vetting people on a, a number of fronts, obviously that guard yeah. clearance for the obvious reasons, uh, but sure. as to whether they're uh, appropriate people to carry out this type of work, if they have the type of listening skills that you're talking about, if they are non-judgmental in the way that you're talking about. Exactly. And the application form kind of delves into those things and you kind of, you have to, you know, there's some actually examples of textures in there and you kind of have to suggest what you would respond to them with. And so that kind of gives us a sense of the person that that is applying. The other aspect as well is really important is how somebody self-care themselves. So how do they take care of their own mental health? And actually, that's a really good indicator for us of somebody who's able to role model good, proactive behaviours. And actually, those who are able to self-care for themselves turn out to be really good volunteers, or at least that's been the experience in the US. It it sounds, Ian, to some degree like a a modern-day equivalent of the Samaritans in that you're a listing service, uh, but something more than that, in that uh, you'll offer advice as well, is it? Yeah, we're going to be um, adding uh, advice to to the service in in the sense that we're going to be signposting people to services. So um, from our perspective, there are lots of services in the community. And often that can be quite daunting for people because they don't necessarily know what service they need or what service they should be looking for. So um, so for us, you know, we're going to be signposting to the services that we have, you know, long worked with in Sponet.ie and and signposted people to over the years. And we're going to be um, letting young people who are in particular situations know about those services so for instance if we have a young lgbti plus young person from Kerry texting in they may not be aware of you know belong to which is the national organization for young lgbti plus young Mm -hmm. people who have a group in Kerry. and so just trying to connect those dots so that people can get okay i'm out of time just before you go uh, just mention that you're doing this not-for-profit funded by the hsc you're looking for volunteers if people wish to volunteer how can they make contact Yes, yeah, so they can look at the information on crisistextline.ie, see if it's for them, and they can apply there as well. Thank you very much indeed. Ian Power, Chief Thanks, Executive Michael. Officer of Crisis Text Line, brings our programme to its conclusion this week. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Ross Leahy for researching, and Chris Murray in the Control Tower. I hope you have a lovely weekend, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme. Monday morning, 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.